Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. Your hopes and dreams and help you work towards them as your financial partner. Happy holidays from your friends at Merchants Bank. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, December 15th, and you've joined us for this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore these challenges. So throughout this year, we've been looking at nuclear strategy, advanced nuclear weapons delivery capabilities, and the effect of these new technologies on nuclear deterrence. We've also looked a bit at nuclear treaties and the implications of those treaties on American national security interests. We'll continue those discussions today, but with a greater focus on the subject of nuclear nonproliferation and disarmament. Our guest today is Dr. David Cooper. David Cooper holds a tenured faculty appointment as the James V. Forrestal Professor of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. He previously served as chair of the Department of National Security Affairs from 2010 to 2018. He teaches in the Naval War College's core and elective programs, and his areas of expertise include nonproliferation, arms control and disarmament, weapons of mass destruction, multilateral negotiations and organizations, international relations theory, and U.S. foreign policy. David Cooper is a scholar practitioner who served for almost two decades in the office of the Secretary of Defense, where he held a career appointment in the senior executive service, including at the two-star level equivalent. Dr. Cooper completed his undergraduate education at Oberlin College, earned a master's degree in international affairs from Columbia, and completed his doctorate at the Australian National University in Canberra, Australia. Dr. Cooper, welcome to National Security This Week. John, thanks very much. Great to be here. So you are on, uh, I assume, a semester or break uh, from the War College right now. Is that right? Uh, no, no, we are we are uh, proceeding ahead. I am just uh, basically... Uh, uh, taking time to do this, uh, we uh, we we value uh, doing this kind of outreach uh, and, and making sure that uh, what we do uh, is getting out there and helping the uh, the discourse on national security overall. And, and speaking of that, uh, I should highlight for our audience that as we have our discussion today, uh, the views that you express are your own, and it's not the the official public position of the Naval War College or the United States Navy. Is that correct? Absolutely. Just me, not representing anyone else, no institution. Uh, that way I can uh, give uh, whatever whatever opinion is on my mind without <laughs> okay. worrying about it. Fair enough. Uh, so let's start our show today with the fact that you, uh, you were a scholar practitioner on these issues of national security. You held various positions in, in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, or, or OSD mm -hmm. as we call it, uh, over the course of about two decades. Can you tell us a little bit about the positions you held and the responsibilities you had in some of those uh, those positions. I I'm certain people listening to our show uh, would like to know a little bit more about the civilian career paths inside the Pentagon. 
Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a strange bird uh, in that I did. I grew up in the Pentagon, as it were, uh, and had a first career uh, as a career uh, Defense Department policy official uh, and then transitioned to a second career in academia uh, about 12 years ago. And, and that's a pretty rare uh, transition to make. Uh, there aren't many people in academia uh, with extensive policy uh, policy background. But to your question, uh, I came into the Pentagon on a program called the Presidential Management Fellowship Program, uh, which is a great program. It's uh, actually not DOD, it's government-wide, uh, run out of the Office of Personnel Management. And it is designed basically to be a management uh, fast-track uh, program uh, for people coming out of top uh, public policy uh, master's degree uh, programs. So it's a two-year program, and at the end of that, I uh, became what's called uh, an action officer, uh, also known as a desk officer. Uh, so those are that's kind of the, uh, the the people who have portfolios for a specific issue. Uh, so, uh, for example, I was uh, my first job was doing uh, regional security negotiations. So I was doing uh, negotiations uh, in Europe, in the Middle East, in Latin America. Uh, multilateral regional security negotiations. Uh, then I moved over and uh, became the portfolio manager for missile nonproliferation. Uh, and uh, after that, uh, did that for a number of years, uh, briefly worked on biological weapons convention uh, negotiations. Uh, then I got promoted and became uh, the deputy director. And after that, the director of the Office of Strategic Arms Control Policy, uh, so that, uh, between the United States and Russia, uh, although uh, a number of, of nuclear treaties. Uh, from there, I uh, became the Director of Nonproliferation Policy, uh, where I was responsible for the, the panoply of uh, efforts to combat the spread of weapons of mass destruction. I served briefly as the Principal Director of Homeland Security Integration, uh, where I was responsible for marrying up uh, the Department of Defense, uh, Homeland Defense efforts with the Department of Homeland Security, uh, which at the time uh, in the late 2000s uh, was still a relatively new entity. Uh, and then finally, my last assignment uh, before resigning from the SES in order to move into uh, academia uh, was as what's called the J-9, uh, which uh, the, t the technical uh, term uh, or title is Director of Outreach. Uh, at the then uh, brand new uh, U.S. AFRICOM, uh, where I also was the uh, director uh, of strategic communication. So I was I was co co hatted uh, dual hatted uh, on that one, uh, and that was the two star level uh, position uh, where I was one of six uh, what's called joint staff directors reporting directly to uh, the AFRICOM commander. So you you've had uh, quite a quite a variety of experiences uh, in, in the national security arena, clearly throughout that career. Uh, so David, so one thing I should say just very briefly yeah. is it, a lot of people, you know, I get that question and they're like, wow, that, you know, you've done all those things. What an unusual career path. Um, and I must say that within uh, the office of the undersecretary of defense for policy, OSC policy, as we call it, very typical career path. Um, I mean, you know, most of the career officials, uh, who stay for that period of time? You know, a lot of a lot of younger people come in, do it for five or six or seven years, uh, and then move out to go to think tanks or industry or over to Congress or whatnot. But for those who stay, it's it's actually a pretty typical career path. Uh, you you typically uh, get to more senior levels, and and they throw you into doing a lot of a lot of different things, and it's all different, but it's all very interesting and all pretty important. 
So one of the areas that that DOD is clearly concerned about in protecting American national security is this issue of of proliferation, and you spent a good bit of your your DOD career doing that, especially for weapons of mass destruction. So I was a career intelligence officer in the Navy, and I had the opportunity to take a lot of intelligence courses on weapons of mass destruction, Uh, did a lot of analytical work uh, related to it, operational work related to it. I came to my own conclusions about which was the most worrisome amongst uh, nuclear, chemical, and biological threats. Uh, as you've clearly looked at these issues during your career in government and, and now in academia at the at the U.S. Naval War College, how would you rank these three threats and why? Well, the ranking is pretty easy. Uh, one, nuclear, two, biological, and a very, very, very distant third, uh, chemical. And, and there are a number of things I would even put in front of chemical um, that, that aren't WMD, so to speak, uh, but, but that I think are a, a more significant threat. In terms of why, nuclear, you know, in a sense, we haven't heard much about nuclear weapons for the last 30 years. There's this, I mean, everyone knows they're still out there, uh, but there's this sense that when the Cold War ended, the world ducked, uh, you know, the, the sort of nuclear holocaust bullet. Um, and the focus has really been on uh, the emergence of small regional nuclear powers uh, like North Korea and Iran. And that's a very serious issue, but it's not an existential issue. Uh, the fact of the matter is that nuclear weapons are really returning to the central role that they played in the Cold War. Um, but now in this new emerging world order, we see of multipolar competition centering on the U.S., Russia and China. So I, I would say that in terms of the threat to uh, the nation and indeed to humanity um, that nuclear weapons pose, uh, they are higher now and growing uh, more than uh, not only in our lifetimes, but I would say since the dawn of, of the nuclear age. Uh, biological has always been uh, ignored to a certain extent. And I think the pandemic may be finally uh, awakening people to uh, the, the threat that biological weapons can hold. Uh, again, the threat of biological weapons has been there uh, you know, since the Middle Ages when people you know, were tossing plague-infected bodies uh, uh, into, into siege cities. Uh, however, this threat really is also poised in, in a place where it, it could become much, much more serious uh, a, a risk, and there's a lot of unknowns. And that's because of the revolution in biotechnology yeah. um, and biosciences. And so, uh, you know, we now face the prospect of biological weapons uh, that could conceivably uh, be uh, targeted to certain genetic uh, features uh, and 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 whatnot. Uh, So that's just a whole new world. And as we think about the promise uh, that biotechnology holds in terms of medical breakthroughs uh, and and whatnot, uh, unfortunately, for every medical breakthrough, for every development of medicine, uh, there's a dark side to that. Uh, And those developments offer the prospect uh, of of, uh, using them uh, for, uh, for nefarious purposes. And then chemical weapons, I mean, chemical weapons are serious, but they're essentially a battlefield uh, weapon. Uh, they're, they're horrific weapons, uh, but I would put uh, the potential of uh, cyber uh, and the destructive power of cyber certainly ahead of uh, chemical uh, and, and any number of other things. Yeah, I, I think you and I are pretty much in total agreement there. Uh, a, a massive nuclear exchange is certainly not anything that we want to have happen anywhere in the world. Uh, I, I would tell you just from my perspective, the one that has always terrified me is the, the weaponized uh, biological uh, threat. 
uh, especially as you just mentioned, the advancing sciences that we have today in this area, it could be, <laughs> it could be really, really bad. I mean, if you think about it, we just hit the 800,000 mark on deaths in America from COVID. Uh, and the mortality rate on COVID is is pretty low compared to what some of the naturally occurring viruses deliver out there in the world, like Ebola, as an example, or or smallpox, if that ever made a, a weaponized entry back into uh, in, into humanity. Uh, so, David, a few weeks ago, I had three former students of mine on the show. Uh, they had all majored in uh, international relations for their undergraduate degree, and all three of them had already earned or 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 are now earning a master's degree in something linked to international relations. Uh, you've been a scholar practitioner in national security. What advice would you give to high school and college students who think this field of study and, and the nexus of international relations and American national security is what they want to pursue for their career? How, how do smart, talented young people break into these fields with the U.S. government or, or even with think tanks? What, I mean, what's the path to success today? So that's a great question, um, and I, I will tell you it is a it is a tough field to break into. So uh, anyone contemplating that should should sort of understand that um, going in. I, I was one of those people. I decided this is what I wanted to do uh, when I was 15 years old, um, and sort of pursued it relentlessly. The, your students, your your former students, are, are doing exactly the right thing. Uh, the feeder system into this, whether you want to go into think tanks or become a congressional staffer or try to break into uh, uh, the federal bureaucracy um, and the national security uh, uh, system. Uh, the feeder system is a professional master's degree uh, from one of the top schools of uh, international uh, relations, professional schools of international relations. So those are schools like the Kennedy School at Harvard, uh, the School of Advanced International Studies uh, at Johns Hopkins, uh, my own alma mater in this regard, uh, the School of International uh, and Public Affairs at Columbia University, uh, School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, School of International Service at American University. Um, if you'll notice, most of these are clustered uh, around Washington, <laughs> and there's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah. um, what I would say is pick you really want to go to a top school if you are going into this area. There are a lot of secondary and even tertiary uh, master's degree programs like this. But to be honest, the competition uh, coming out of these programs, uh, this is just one of these situations where, uh, unfortunately, um, it's a funnel with a very wide opening um, in terms of input and a very narrow opening in terms of output. So the competition for the, the jobs that everyone from these programs wants, uh, it, it's such that you really want to be uh, at one of the top schools. And I would say uh, one of the top schools in Washington uh, so that you can be doing internships and making those contacts even while you're while you're studying. Uh, Columbia is great if you want to go into uh, something related to uh, international business. Uh, Columbia would be your best because for, for the exact same reason in in New York City uh, and that proximity. Uh, Kennedy School, you know, you you're at a disadvantage, but it's also Harvard, so yeah. you're not really at a disadvantage. <laughs> but I, you know, my my advice would be, uh, you know, focus on getting into one of those top schools, uh, but do it with your eyes wide open. Uh, it, it is it is tough to break into this, and unfortunately, one of the things that makes it uh, even tougher is at the end you'll have a degree that if you don't break into it isn't very dynamic in terms of being useful 
for other things. It's not like if you had a law degree or something like that, you didn't get to do exactly what you want. Well, you, you can do any number of other things uh, with a degree in international uh, affairs uh, or public policy or something like that. Um, so you are taking a big risk. But if that's what you want to do, that that's the path to do it. Yeah, if it's your passion, it's not. It doesn't feel like work, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080, and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. David Cooper from the U.S. Naval War College, and we're discussing nuclear deterrence and disarmament in the age of advancing technology. And so, Dr. Cooper, let's dive into our core topic for today, nuclear deterrence and disarmament. Uh, and I think we should begin our talk by covering the state of play in the world uh, with regard to nuclear weapons. Uh, there are a number of countries out there that do have a nuclear inventory. Uh, thankfully, only a few of those uh, p- potentially threaten American national security interests. Uh, and those countries are Russia, China, and North Korea, and, and maybe Iran eventually. Uh, and, but I want to add that if, uh, if the Pakistani <clears throat> Taliban happened to overthrow the Pakistani government, uh, the nation of Pakistan could immediately join that list of potential threats to America. And I say that only because the Taliban in Afghanistan created a blueprint for success. So we should be mindful of Pakistan's uh, stability as we go forward. Uh, so maybe we, could you talk a little bit about Russia first? What advancements are the Russians making in their arsenal or their delivery capabilities, and why should we be concerned? Well, let me start out by saying that Russia is now far and away uh, the number one nuclear uh, power in the world. Uh, in terms of uh, number of nuclear weapons, uh, they are uh, far uh, ahead of us, uh, who, who right now are, are number two. Uh, but also in terms of modernization, uh, they have they are coming to the end of a cycle uh, that Vladimir Putin launched about a decade ago uh, to fully modernize uh, their uh, their nuclear triad. We are just at the beginning stages of modernization. So at this point, uh, the Russians have a far larger force, but they also have a far more capable force. Uh, Our nuclear forces at this point uh, are frankly, uh, for the most part, decrepit. Uh, This is why we we are modernizing all three legs of our nuclear triad simultaneously, uh, because we have not modernized since the end of the Cold War. Uh, We basically went on a nuclear modernization holiday uh, for the last 30 years, yeah. uh, whereas uh, Russia uh, Russia did not. So in that sense, uh, you can only describe uh, the Russian strategic posture as formidable. Now, there are various uh, questions in terms of, is it sustainable? Right. Uh, Russia's economic situation, uh, certainly, uh, if I had to choose uh, our economy or the Russian economy, uh, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, lose a lot of sleep agonizing over that choice. So uh, it may well be that Russia is at its high water mark. uh, But that is not necessarily a reassuring thing, uh, because President Putin, I think, uh, may realize that. And really, uh, nuclear, nuclear forces and strategic advantage is really the only thing Russia has going for it, in terms of uh, Putin's bid uh, to return Russia to being a premier uh, global power. Uh, and, and so Russia relies on its strategic forces uh, more than most countries as, as sort of a basis of its military uh, power. In, in terms of 
so, specifics. So, David, if I can ask real, very quickly on, on that topic. Uh, I, I've had a lot of conversations with people who are, you know, former or, re, or retired even national security professionals. And we all sort of come to the same conclusion that, frankly, if Russia did not have uh, the size nuclear arsenal that they have today, nobody would pay any attention to them. They'd be virtually irrelevant on a global scale. Is that a pretty accurate? I mean, somewhere between irrelevant and, you know, Brazil. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, but but the fact is, they do have, and, and when you look at the size of the Russian economy, the investment that they have put in, I mean, this is a a sizable investment. And again, they're at the return end of that investment. Uh, so uh, currently coming online, just to give you a few uh, snippets, uh, you have the Satan 2, uh, the Sarmat uh, heavy ICBM. Uh, this will be the largest ICBM ever produced. It is capable, and this is official Russian TV, loves the statistic. Uh, it is a single... Sarmat Satan II uh, missile will be capable of carrying enough MIRVs, multiple independently retargetable uh, vehicles, uh, to destroy the entire state of Texas or the entire nation of France. In other words, one missile will be able to carry enough firepower to pretty much obliterate Texas. Um, they are they are deploying these um, over the next few years, uh, and that will be a mainstay of their missile force. Um, the Poseidon, uh, nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed, autonomous uh, torpedo. Uh, this is essentially Putin's answer to his concerns about American uh, missile defense efforts. Uh, if you're worried America is going to uh, develop missile defenses that might obviate uh, your, your missiles, well, you create an underwater missile. Uh, this has been nicknamed the Tsunami Apocalypse Torpedo. Um, it's a very interesting strategic concept. This is, if you if you remember uh, Dr. Strangelove, this is the actual doomsday machine. Uh, in fact, uh, these things are basically designed to carry larger nuclear warheads than have ever been deployed um, by, by a very large factor. And the operational concept is they are going to, in custom-designed submarines, uh, they are going to loiter um, off our coasts. And if and when they're deployed, uh, their deployment method will be to create a huge radioactive uh, tsunami, uh, which will inundate uh, basically uh, the seacoasts of the United States where most of our population lives. Uh, so again, this is getting back to the idea, this is, this is the true doomsday um, scenario. Uh, Russia is also uh, ahead uh, in uh, the development of the newest delivery technology, maneuverable hypersonic uh, missiles. And unlike the United States, uh, Russia has been explicit uh, that it is developing these as nuclear delivery vehicles to include uh, intercontinental strategic nuclear delivery vehicles. Uh, and uh, Russia is thought to be planning uh, to have multiple of these uh, maneuverable hypersonic missiles uh, launched again off of that Satan II Sarmat uh, missile. So these are these are technologies that are as game changing, I believe, over the coming decade as the development of ICBMs uh, and MIRVs uh, were uh, in in the uh, in the 1960s. So we are moving into a game changing technology race, uh, and at this point, uh, we are certainly, I think, as a uh, as a government and as a nation, uh, waking up to that fact. 
Um, but we are, uh, in my assessment, uh, behind the curve. Uh, both uh, Russia and China uh, have, a, have a bit of a head start uh, on, on this stuff. Now, on the, on the Russian inventory, those, uh, those new ICBMs, are those, uh, are those mobile platforms uh, carried around on transporter, erector, launchers, or TELs, or are they silo-based like a lot of our uh, nuclear force and what China's working towards? Or I mean, and, that, that, and I ask that question because those, those offer two very different uh, challenges from a targeting perspective, right? Yep, it's a great question. So the, the Sarmat will be silo-based, um, but Russia does have mobile missiles, and China uh, is developing uh, a mobile uh, ICBM, uh, which will have MIRVs. And this is another point. Um, we we not only are behind in numbers, we have no mobile systems at all, and we're about to replace uh, the Minuteman, but we're replacing it with another static silo base. The last time we thought about replacing the Minuteman in the late Cold War period, no one thought about replacing them with another static silo-based system. That was literally not even an option. Uh, there were two systems that were debated, the so-called Midgetman uh, mobile ICBM. I remember that. <laughs> and the MX Peacekeeper, which was going to be a heavy rail mobile ICBM. And in the end, before the Cold War ended, the decision that was made was to go with both of those um, and to move to an all-mobile ICBM force. So the fact that we are basically going to be investing um, you know, our treasure to buy a new static ICBM. It's a product of that decision was made in, you know, basically the early Obama administration at a time when we weren't really thinking about active strategic competition. Uh, my assessment is it's too late to change that. Um, the idea of going back to the drawing board at this point is politically probably not sustainable. But from a strategic point of view, uh, and again, this is where I say, all official, all positions are, are, are my own. Yeah, yeah. From a from a strategic <laughs> point of view, it's nonsensical. Yeah. Um, we we should be replacing our static ICBMs with at least some mobile ICBMs as we were planning to during the Cold War. That's just not how it's shaping up. Yeah, uh, maybe we should move on to China. Uh, we only have about a half hour left, unfortunately. Uh, a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, have heard the recent news about China's development of uh, ICBM missile fields in western China, hundreds of new silos. Uh, the Chinese are building much greater nuclear deterrence cap capacity for themselves. They've also been working on new delivery capabilities. So can you explain what the Chinese are doing and why? Well, that is currently the big debate yep. within <laughs> within the field. So, um, you know, there are different theories of the case. Uh, ranging from the relatively benign uh, that China, uh, as we are entering a power, uh, a, a period rather of strategic competition, uh, that China feels that it can no longer lag so far behind uh, the United States uh, as it has. And so this kind of benign view is that China is is moving to basically uh, achieve uh, enough of a credible uh, deterrent against the United States uh, that the United States can't use its uh, overwhelming nuclear superiority as a way of bullying uh, or or uh, intimidating China. So that's sort of the benign interpretation. Uh, another interpretation, one I personally subscribe to, is that what we are seeing here is uh, essentially a sprint towards strategic parity. Uh, that China, having mastered the technology, they are fielding um, a full-scope MIRV 
ICBM, mobile ICBM for the first time. Uh, they are fielding uh, capable uh, submarine-launched, uh, intercontinental uh, submarine-launched uh, ballistic missiles uh, for the first time. Uh, so that theory is essentially that they mastered the technology while keeping the numbers low. Now that they have that technology, uh, they are going to uh, do a sprint towards uh, parity. Um, and then a third theory of the case is is actually the same, the same as that, but with a little more sinister edge, and that is uh, that this is a sprint towards superiority. Uh, and particularly given that China and Russia, uh, they are still nuclear rivals. They are still targeting each other. But of course, politically, uh, they have at least a temporary marriage of convenience uh, designed to basically put the United States on its heels in terms of being the dominant global power. Um, so in that sense, the idea is uh, that China may even be wanting to get a, the sort of nuclear superiority that would it, let it intimidate us. So that scenario goes something like, you know, hey, we're about to invade Taiwan. And lest you think you want to intervene on that, uh, remember, we we now have as many or more nuclear weapons uh, as as you do. And that reflects we've seen this, you know, uh, with Ukraine. Uh, President Putin has used nuclear saber rattling um pretty consistently, uh, where he will publicly remind people uh, who think that maybe uh, they want to intervene, uh, that Russia is the, the, the largest nuclear power uh, in the world. So in terms of which of those it is, uh, that's sort of the explanation of you know, what their intentions are. And that's hard to know uh, what what they're doing, though, is is pretty obvious. And that is that they are significantly bolstering from a small uh, presumed small strategic nuclear force um, to a much larger one. I would also point out they are ahead uh, of us, too, and maybe ahead of the Russians in developing intercontinental hypersonic uh, maneuverable uh, delivery vehicles. And another news story uh, that surprised uh, many in the media and the public, but wasn't a surprise to those of us who follow these issues, was uh, basically uh, their globe-circling uh, hypersonic uh, missile. Uh, that's what it was presumed to be, uh, which essentially would be able to hit any target on Earth uh, very rapidly and overcome any defenses and even current detection systems uh, that, that we now have. Yeah, it's a little it's a little disconcerting. Uh, you know, I was going to ask you as you were talking about, you know, the three reasons why you think China might be doing what they're doing. And uh, you beat me to the punch because I was going to ask you, do you think they took a lesson from watching Putin play one of the weakest hands out there? But because he has such a, a, a strong nuclear deterrent, uh, he can get away with a lot more than than uh, any other country. So if China does have that same capability uh, on parity with the United States, they, they have a lot uh a lot more juice to work with, as we say, right? Uh, let's talk a little bit about North Korea. I want to get into the North Korea problem, and then maybe we can talk about Iran as well. How, how many Nor how many warheads do, does North Korea have? How powerful are those warheads? What capabilities do they possess to deliver those warheads against American targets? And and I'll ask this question because I, I think it's something that people should know. What, what are America's defenses specifically against a North Korean strike against the United States? So that's another big debate. Um, <laughs> uh, in terms of your, your most basic question, uh, the the number of warheads is is obviously not known. Uh, but the typical unclassified estimate is that they probably have about fifty at this point, uh, give give or take. Uh, the real question is about delivery and whether those fifty warheads are actually 
uh, deliverable uh, in a way that could threaten the United States uh, or or even uh, our much closer allies, uh, such as uh, Japan and South Korea, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so they have a challenge in terms of warheads. And that is, it's one thing to build a nuclear warhead, meaning you've built something that in a test explodes and and produces uh, a, a nuclear explosion at a, a significant yield. It's another to have that miniaturized and toughened up enough, if you will, uh, to be able to be delivered on top of a ballistic missile. And given that the North Koreans have no uh, long-range uh, bomber capabilities per se, uh, ballistic missiles are their only real option. So that's the first unknown. Uh, they are thought to be making progress in that direction, uh, but it's unknown how much progress. And then there's and, the and if I could ask, themselves. If I could ask, David, they, they have not yet demonstrated uh, the full cycle of uh, delivery of a warhead from an ICBM and detonation at the end of that targeting, right? They, they have not. They, have claim, they claim to have an ICBM, yeah. Uh, and they've done some testing that has surprised people because it's actually looking a lot better than people thought. Um, but it is not it is not certain that they even have an ICBM yet. So they've got a warhead challenge and they've got a missile challenge. Uh, they need to develop a warhead that can be delivered by an ICBM and then they need to develop that ICBM. Uh, and so far, it's not clear that they have either. Uh, but what is clear is they are working very hard on both sides of that puzzle. Uh, and there are some worrying indications uh, that they are making progress. In terms of South Korea and Japan, uh, that does not require, obviously, an ICBM. And it's far more likely that once, when and if they get a warhead that is capable of being delivered on a ballistic missile, uh, that they will have the ballistic missiles ready uh, that can threaten uh uh, uh, the our regional allies and and regional forces. Okay, and, and how about American defenses against uh, a, a North Korean strike? I mean, when when we talk about like a Russia or China strike on the U.S., that's that's an overwhelming strike. It's a very almost impossible uh, defense against that. But a, a country like North Korea, with a limited number of warheads, a uh, limited number of ICBMs, if they ever develop it, what what's our capacity to to knock those things down? So in a sense, that has been the pacing threat for our defensive uh, programs uh, for, for the last 20 years. And, you know, China and Russia have consistently kind of gone bonkers about our missile defense stuff. And, and we have consistently said, look, we need to be able to defend ourselves against a limited threat like North Korea. Uh, we're, we're not so sure that deterrence is, is, is going to be what we want to rely on. Um, and, and you need to understand that Russia and China haven't understood that. They, they are convinced that that is just a stalking horse to, you know, sort of uh, develop new technologies. But for, for North Korea, that's the threat that we have uh, been, been facing. We do have uh, a limited capability. Uh, in terms of national missile defense, uh, which is aimed at a North Korean-style uh, threat. Uh, Guam, Hawaii are, are thought to be obvious targets. Uh, we are working uh, very closely and cooperatively with Japan as Japan develops missile defenses. Um, so that part of it, I think, is, is well in hand, even if there's still work uh, to be done. The problem is, if this hypersonic genie gets out of the bottle, and North Korea is already right. uh, starting to make noises, 
that, yep, we're going to get into that hypersonic business. As a matter of fact, they claim to already be in it. Um, that changes everything because right now we don't have defenses against maneuverable hypersonic vehicles for all intents and purposes. Uh, for, for technical reasons, I, I won't get into what works against a ballistic missile um, is very unlikely to be effective against a maneuverable hypersonic vehicle. And so we may have to go back to the drawing board uh, and come up with an entirely new concept of missile defense, not only because of Russia and China, but even uh, for threats like North Korea, um, Iran, or, or others, if, if, as I say, this hypersonic missile genie uh, gets, gets out of the bottle. And that will basically involve a space-based uh, defensive architecture, which again is is an entirely uh, new new kettle of fish to anything uh, that we have now or have been pursuing. So we almost go back to the uh, the era of Ronald Reagan and and uh, SDI. <laughs> we, we we do. I mean, essentially, the the if you have a if you have the deployment of maneuverable hypersonic nuclear delivery vehicles, uh, you really have to go back to. Uh, almost the Reagan concept, uh, and, and indeed, there are some experts who are suggesting that the, uh, the the most efficient thing we could do right now is dust off what was called brilliant pebbles, right? Yeah. Uh, which which was the scaled back version of SDI yeah. um, that was canceled when the Cold War ended, and and basically the idea there is, look, we we you know we have the blueprints; they're thirty years old, <laughs> yeah. but. but Let's let's open that drawer, pull them out, and start thinking about you know yeah. pursuing that sort of thing. Yeah. So so hitting hitting a bullet with another bullet, right? Uh, that's kind of where our defense uh, concepts stand right now. What about directed energy weapons as a defense against uh, maneuverable hypersonics? Is that a possibility? Yeah, it's a possibility, and it's certainly one that everyone is looking at. Um, defensive uh, energy in terms of uh, missile defense, whether ground-based or space-based, uh, is, is, is another possibility. That's exactly, I mean, you know, uh, the, the Reagan Strategic Defense Initiative was, was rather derisively referred to as Star Wars at the time. Right. Um, in, in effect, hypersonics will require Star Wars um, concepts. Uh, we have miraculously achieved the ability to hit a moving bullet with a moving bullet, which everyone thought could be impossible. Well, we've done that. Now we have a maneuvering moving bullet. Right. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the challenge there, uh, a maneuvering uh, moving bullet with almost no heat signature. Right. Yep. So right now we use infrared as our main tracking. Uh, that will that will not track a hypersonic during portions of its flight and its maneuvering, and it's coming in at hypersonic speeds. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to the Iranian program. I'd, I'd like to talk about that just a little bit, and then there's some other questions I, I want to make sure we cover today. Uh, where does the Iranian program stand right now? No warheads yet, but the potential to break out. Is that is that right? Yeah, I, I think it stands right now um, not too far from where it stood in 2015, uh, when the nuclear deal uh, went into effect. I mean, in a sense, uh, the Iran nuclear deal uh, called JICPOA, uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, it, it, it wasn't really a disarmament uh, agreement. It, it was more of pause. I mean, it basically was seeking to freeze the Iranian program in place in the hopes that you could freeze it for a decade and you know work the matter politically. Um, the fact of the matter is <clears throat> that Iran is sort of in a um, partial 
unfreezing. Uh, when the Trump administration withdrew, Iran has been sort of uh, progressively violating aspects of the nuclear deal. Uh, but they are still negotiating a return to the deal. Uh, at this point, though, even if even if miraculously Iran said, OK, we'll return to the deal tomorrow. Uh, the fact is that that pause has so little time left. Um, yeah. So essentially, uh, Iran is right where they were. Uh, they are poised uh, kind of at the threshold of things and will either break out of Jopoa, uh or or allow it to uh, expire. And in some ways, and I hate to say this, but in some ways, the nuclear deal made things worse uh, because it unfroze, you know, a huge amount of assets uh, that had been frozen uh, and lifted uh, a number of sanctions. And so, you know, Iran has more funding now uh, for these programs uh, than it than it had before. So uh, I, I don't think the Iran nuclear deal solves this. It may even have made things slightly worse. Um, but we are where we are. Uh, the Biden administration is pursuing diplomacy. It is not looking um, very promising. Uh, Iran, as you uh, and your listeners know, uh, has moved to a more uh, hardline uh, government at this point. So the idea that that this new hardline government is going to take a softer uh, position seems improbable. So I, I think, you know, the, the betting money is uh, Iran can be a nuclear power if it wants uh, pretty quickly. Uh, unlike North Korea, they already have all the missiles uh, that they that right. they need. They don't have an intercontinental range. Yeah. Um, but they have the technical wherewithal that probably wouldn't be too challenging for them. Um, so the, the bigger question to me is whether Iran decides to take that step or whether it kind of plays the Japanese game and tiptoes right up to the line as what's called a threshold nuclear power, where everyone knows they could become a nuclear power very quickly, but they don't cross that line, but get a lot of the uh, coercive uh, and, and whatnot benefits. In either case, the bigger question at this point isn't Iran, it's the greater Middle East. Yeah. And the you know, Saudi Arabia has has said that if Iran gets nuclear weapons, they too will get nuclear weapons. Right. Uh, Turkey, uh, which is sort of in a uh, a slow motion uh, divorce from Europe and, <laughs> and NATO. NATO. Yeah, exactly. uh, Turkey has said uh, that they can't rule out uh, that they would get nuclear weapons uh, in in such a situation. Uh, Israel, of course, has nuclear weapons, uh, although that hasn't been officially confirmed. Uh, Israel could easily uh, respond to this by coming out of the closet uh, and declaring itself a nuclear power, possibly even testing. Uh, and then it's not inconceivable in that sort of situation uh, that Egypt might decide they need to join uh, join the fracas. So it, it is very worrisome that Iran could be a nuclear power, but in a sense, that's just the beginning of the worry. Uh, the worry is if and when that happens, uh, what will the regional dynamics be? And and frankly, uh, all of that is more worrisome because of the power vacuum uh, in the perceived uh, post-Afghanistan withdrawal fiasco, in the perceived power vacuum uh, that the U.S. has left. Now, obviously, we're going to try to uh, reverse that perception, uh, but, you know, whether whether the greater Middle East in terms of uh, a nuclear arms race at the regional level, I think is very much an open question. 
so I was going to ask you, you know, should we be more worried about smaller states and nuclear proliferations or, or the larger states with truly significant nuclear weapons inventory or both? I, I think you've kind of answered that question as we've gone through this discussion. Uh, so what? I, let me ask you this. Um, all, Dr. Cooper, all this sounds like we might be entering into a destabilizing phase with regard to nuclear weapons. Uh, new delivery capabilities that render many of the ballistic missile defenses inadequate or even obsolete. And, and I spe- suspect you might have some ideas on how these capabilities undermined current treaties or or other defenses. Could you share your thoughts on, on those two points, especially the treaties? How do, how do these new capabilities undermine the existing treaties, the few that are left anyway? Yep. So I have a new book that just came out called Arms Control for the Third Nuclear Age Between Disarmament and Armageddon. And the key part of that title is the third nuclear age. And my suggestion is that the world is entering a third nuclear age. Uh, the first nuclear age uh, was the Cold War, uh, and that was the bilateral, bipolar standoff between the two superpowers. Uh, the second nuclear age was the post-Cold War era, where essentially uh, you had U.S. Uh, new, US dominance uh, at the conventional level, and nuclear weapons sort of receded. And certainly in terms of U.S.-Russia, that just wasn't it wasn't something anyone was worried about. So we were worried about the lesser things like Iraq or Iran or Syria or or whatnot. The third nuclear age that I think is emerging, uh, many people think is emerging, is basically going to be a multipolar situation uh, where you have nuclear competition uh, between a core triangle of Russia, the United States and China, where each of those three is targeting each of the other two. Uh, In addition, you'll have uh, France and Britain uh, targeting Russia. You have India targeting China. Uh, So this is all a very destabilizing web of relationships. And that's even assuming that you don't have new powers uh, jumping in. Uh, For the first time in decades, you have serious discussions, although quiet and unofficial discussions, uh, about whether some of our allies think they may need their own nuclear weapons. So these are discussions in places like uh, Japan, Australia, South Korea, uh, Germany. Uh, But even assuming you don't have new powers jumping in, my argument is that the world has never known a multipolar nuclear standoff. Right. And if you think about it, our whole concept of deterrence, the great strategist, uh, Lawrence Friedman, one of the last living uh, great nuclear strategists from the Cold War, uh, depicted deterrence in the image of a Western. And, you know, the standoff between the two two guys, each of them holding their guns. And, you know, the idea is if they both knew the other might be able to get him, neither would draw uh, that it was a standoff. I argue that what we're coming into is another Western image. The good, um, the, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> it's the Mexican standoff. Exactly. Yeah. It's where everyone has people on all sides yeah. and they're all shifting. Yeah. And if you just think about that, the chances of that going wrong are much worse <laughs> because any one person that miscalculates and everyone's shooting everyone. Yeah. So, you know, this is a situation where, you know, you have one actor gets antsy. And does something, even just in terms of raising nuclear alert postures or whatever. And it's going to be a ripple effect across this web because everyone else is going to respond to that. And this is something that, frankly, we don't even have a theory of deterrence for yet. Um, 
because our theories of deterrence are from the bipolar Cold War world. And then in the post-Cold War world, well, we just we thought deterrence didn't matter. And we stopped thinking about it. I'm, I'm exaggerating to a bit, but but to a certain extent, in terms of strategic nuclear deterrence, not so much. Uh, in this world, this is where the smaller countries can be real problems, too, because, again, imagine who's the country you'd be most stupid. Is that Russia? Is that China? Is that India? No, that's probably North Korea, potentially Iran. But here's the thing. If North Korea does something crazy and stupid, we react to North Korea, but then China and Russia react to us and that whole web gets activated again. Right. So the danger of the small countries in this interconnected web of nuclear dyads, if you will, is they could be not that North Korea is going to be a threat in itself to American civilization or the world, but it could be the spark. Um, it could be, if you will, the assassination in Sarajevo. I was just thinking the same thing. It looks like World War One all over again. It, exactly. So, so Dr. Cooper, let's talk a little bit. We only have about 10 minutes left. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how we pull the world back from the brink. Um, with your experience at OSD, how does the U.S. initiate a dialogue with countries like Russia, China, and North Korea to start the process of creating and adopting maybe some new treaties relevant to our modern geopolitical realities? And, and I'll ask you, you know, what, what would a new treaty look like? Uh, is it does it control the total number of warheads? Does it control delivery capabilities, numbers of silos or launchers, how many m- missiles uh, a nation has? Because that's separate and distinct from the number of warheads. Uh, how many aircraft or ballistic missile submarines? I mean, what what are the operative ways to control for you know to increase safety? Yep. So th- this is this is the topic of the book I mentioned that I just published, uh, Arms Control for the Third Nuclear Age, is, is looking specifically at that question. And what I come out with is a fairly pessimistic, but nonetheless, um, you know, so the, the current nuclear control architecture is unraveling. It's, it's in tatters. And that makes sense. It was never designed for uh, great power strategic rivalry. It was designed for much more benign conditions. So the question is, do we move into the first uncontrolled arms race since 1972, or can we put some nuclear guardrails in place? I think the prospects for putting nuclear guardrails in place are very dim in the near term, and that we need to look at the long game here. Uh, And the reason for that is that right now, uh, Russia and China really don't have a lot of motivation. Yeah, Uh, They're, you know, Russia is in the catbird seat and China is in an inferior position now that they clearly uh, have decided to uh, to rectify. So the idea that either of them would agree to negotiating their way uh, out of that advantageous position uh, is, is, in my view, far-fetched. Uh, I think what we need to be thinking of is in terms of we need to, and this is going to be a very controversial thought, um, but I will put it out there. <laughs> we need to get back to the Cold War concept of arms racing toward arms control. Mm. In other words, we need to make it clear that if they are going to try to be uh, achieving uh, an advantage over us, that we will not allow that, uh, that we will uh, develop systems and deploy systems and whatnot, all while saying, but there's another way. Okay. There's a better way. Yeah. Uh, there's a less costly way. There's a less dangerous way. And this is, in fact, how arms control worked. I mean, 
remember, the START Treaty, the INF Treaty, uh, these were the product of basically a quarter century of negotiations throughout which there was an arms race and throughout which the Soviets continually tried to test um, you know, whether they could get an advantage. Right now, if we want arms control, we are going to have to show that we are willing to arms race as an alternative. If we're not, then essentially we're engaging in unilateral disarmament. Because if we stay still while others move forward, that is, in effect, unilateral uh, disarmament. And if you're unilaterally disarming, uh, rivals are going to, when you say, how about having a treaty, you're going to say, no, 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 we're, 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 we're fine letting you do that. Um, that is a tough pill to swallow. Right now, the two solutions that are out there, you have doves that want kind of universal disarmament, and you have hawks who want to throw off the shackles of these Cold War treaties and post-Cold War treaties and try to compete um, in an unfettered way. My view is neither of those solutions is viable. Um, yeah. You're not going to get uh, nuclear uh, disarmament because China and Russia are profoundly disinterested. And I don't believe we can arms race uh, to superiority, uh, certainly against China uh, at this point, just because of our own domestic political and budgetary constraints. So I, my personal view is what we need to do is get back to a Cold War style of mentality uh, and that is that we are an arms race. We need to acknowledge that in a clear-eyed way. Uh, we need to engage in it, but we need to do that always offering proposals for an alternative along the lines of, of strategic nuclear treaties. And I'm assuming any new treaties that we want to move forward with is going to have to have that trust but verify component to it. So there's a mechanism to confirm the other sides are, are doing what they say they're going to do. It is, and that's going to be one of the huge obstacles because the Chinese are absolutely anathema to <laughs> any kind of transparency. China has a fundamentally different theory of deterrence than the United States and Russia. Both the United States and Russia have a theory of deterrence that basically says the way to deter is by making clear how strong you are. Yeah. We want everyone to know what we have and what it can do. The Chinese have a theory of deterrence that basically says uh, being ambiguous, being opaque, keeping the others guessing about how strong you are um, is the theory of deterrence. And therefore, for them, verification is absolutely anathema. So, you know, I think if we're going to have any progress, uh, it's probably going to look a lot more like the SALT one treaty um, in the early 70s. Uh, which essentially was not having any intrusive verification and therefore was only trying to limit really huge things like missile silos, number of missile silos, um, number of submarines, not warheads or, or even missiles uh, themselves. To be honest, though, I think all of those technical details are beside the point um, for now. Right now, we need to focus on motivating China to belly up to the bar in terms of even being willing to join a a negotiating process, and that hasn't happened yet. So in a sense, we really are in the baby, baby step phase. Um, there's no point trying to come up with, well, here's, you know, here's the big treaty that solves everything. We have to get the Chinese to be willing to come and join the United States and Russia at that negotiating table. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Cooper, we're almost out of time. Uh, give us your, the title of the book, your recent book, uh, one more time. Uh, the book is Arms Control for the Third Nuclear Age, 
between Disarmament and Armageddon. And it was published in October by Georgetown University Press. And it's available on Amazon and uh, Barnes & Noble. It is available on, on Amazon. All right. Uh, well, sir, we've come to the end of another edition of National Security This Week. Uh, Dr. David Cooper, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you've helped us to further understand both nuclear deterrence and disarmament challenges, a subject we've been looking at throughout this first year of our uh, time on the air uh, with this show. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. John, thanks for having me. It was really a pleasure. And, and how much longer do you have left on the term uh, this this uh, this fall at the Naval War College? So we are in our winter term. We're actually in a trimester system. So okay. our winter term runs uh, basically from November through February. Okay. A little little time off over the holidays, I assume. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right. Uh, so, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. We would love your feedback on National Security This Week here at KYMN Radio, so please take a few minutes to contact us and let us know how we're doing. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.